Good evening. It's good to be with you once again, and I want to welcome you to our Wednesday night Bible study as we continue our study in the book of Romans. Uh, trust that you have your Bibles, and if you do, if you'd open them to Romans chapter 5 as uh, we'll pick up our discussion uh, at that point again. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you again for your kindness in our lives and just how you continue to provide for us. We do thank you, Father, so much for the incredible and marvelous gift of salvation that you have given us. We pray, Lord, as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, that you'll help us, Father, to be able to to better understand, to comprehend all the varying nuances of our uh, salvation that Paul covers and talks about. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our faith in you will be strengthened, as we come to a deeper understanding of these incredible truths and how far-reaching they are, as we also better understand how far-reaching and devastating sin is, to see, Lord, that we are truly and completely and utterly saved by you and by your grace, and that, Father, we are absolutely in every way transformed uh, by your grace. So we ask, Lord, that, again, we would be encouraged uh, by your word, and we pray that you would grant us understanding We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read once again verses 1 through 5. And think of it in these terms that Paul wants us to understand the reality, the true meaning of our salvation. And when I say true meaning, what I mean by that is it's true meaning and how it affects us every day. Uh, What it is means for us in that when I am saved by God, uh, what does that mean in real life? When, when I wake up on Monday morning and, and go to work, when I, uh, when I interact with my wife or my husband and my children, uh, when I interact with unbelievers and I take care of the various things that I have to take care of to get along in life, um, how is it that that the fact that I have been saved by God's grace, how does that affect my mental state? How does that affect me emotionally? How does that affect me intellectually? How does it affect my behavior? How does it affect my attitudes? All those things are kind of intertwined in what he's talking about. So Romans 5, beginning of verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So last week, as we were closing out, we spent quite a bit of time actually just dealing with the word tribulation, making sure we had a good understanding of what he was talking about, that this word is is talking about um, not trivial trouble that we have, but things that that can be crushing, uh, things that uh, can be even debilitating, uh, whether it it, uh, affects us deeply emotionally, um, you know, maybe even causing a person to feel very sad or, or maybe even depressed, uh, where the individual may feel crushed under the weight because whatever's going on, this tribulation that he's going through is something that he finds himself continually thinking about because it's always on his mind. So he wants to make sure that we understand that he's, that he's not dealing with just with, you know, you have a hangnail or something like that. And of course, he doesn't end with that. He talks about that tribulation serves a, a purpose in our life. Uh, God's going to use tribulation. He always will use tribulation to produce things in us. Uh, because what, what's behind that is this idea that God is always working in us uh, to transform us into the image of His Son, Christ. We have been uh, utterly damaged by sin. Uh, we've been corrupted by sin. So there's this transformation that's taking place, the transformation of the person, uh, of you and I. So the moment that the trials and tribulations that we've been talking about hit us, uh, there's some things that we should uh, understand that are true. Number one, uh, we should realize a new and fresh need of Christ. 
that's what one of the things that tribulation will produce in us is uh, we realize that I still need Christ. I, I still need him to, to help me through. Um, it's not that we necessarily begin to think at any point in time that we don't need Christ. We just kind of, you know, maybe uh, relegate him to the back burner, so to, so, so to speak. We don't really, we may not think much about our salvation, what it means, the relationship we have with Christ. We're human beings. We, we, we can do that from time to time. As we grow, we should do that less and less. Um, but it's kind of like uh, when a couple has is, is been married for a long time, they don't intend to take each other for granted, and they may do that a little bit. But when a new crisis hits the family, uh, and the husband and wife are working through it together, sometimes what happens is is that that stressful situation r- reminds them that uh, the, their partner, their life partner, really is the best life partner for them. It helps them to realize that, yeah, I depend upon this person, and I need this person. Uh, you know, to get through these times, for us to get through these things together as, as a family. Secondly, when uh, tribulations hit, uh, we should not just look at the problem. We should remember the things that, that Jesus has said and what he's promised. Uh, so we're not just left with looking at the event itself or the trouble uh, in no other context. There is always the context that Jesus has promised that he would not abandon us in that and that there's very real help for us in that situation. Thirdly, um, tribulations do not leave us unmoved or unchanged. Uh, Problems often will drive an unbeliever away from God. Uh, It's not that they really have a relationship with God, but maybe they were thinking about God, but it'll drive them away from God. But the believer, normally anyway, uh, the tribulations, these crushing things that we go through, should really drive us towards God because we're seeking his help. He's our refuge. Uh, so again, it's not just putting up with the tribulation or the or the trouble or the stress. It's not just resig- resignation. Um, it is, uh, it's waiting, but we're waiting with strength. You know, we're unwavering. Fourthly, um, one of the things that tribulation will produce in us is that we will know ourselves maybe a little better than we knew ourselves before. And that, that's a good thing. Um, now, this is not about us finding ourselves and uh, getting in touch with ourselves. Uh, this is understanding that God has put us here with a purpose. He desires to use us to influence other people. He calls us to do things that are, at times, difficult and hard. So when we go through times of stress, we we know ourselves better. We, we learn that with God's help, we are capable of more things. We're capable of dealing with stress. We're, we're stronger uh, now than we were before. We understand better what makes us tick. We, we recognize our weaknesses uh, more readily. You know, all those things are helpful for us uh, as we continue to adjust to life and really continue to mature. So tribulations help me to see my true condition. If I respond poorly, I realize that I'm not as far along in the Christian life as I should be. Uh, And that's not a small thing. I should realize the seriousness of it. Um, I should have a strong desire to change, to grow strong, uh, to mature, um, to want to go beyond just the whining, uh, but to have strong victory, uh, to overcome the trial in the midst of the trial, uh, not just when it's over. Um, all All of these things drives us to greater dependence upon God, who is our source for all things. He is our source of strength. And so that these things again continue to move us in that direction. So it deepens us. Um, uh, We see that we may have been content with maybe being kind of shallow before, uh, content with, I guess, the changes that have been brought about and not really striving to be, I guess you would say, to be all that Christ would have us to be. you know, we don't want to be like the man who, when he's looking for a, a wife, only looks at her outward beauty. Um, because we would say, well, this guy's shallow, and he's going to end up with a shallow person. That's all that he's doing. Uh, we're guilty of, this, of the same thing sometimes as Christians. Our commitment to Christ and his commands are based on on how things are going for us. Things are going well. We're, we're obedient um, to God, and we're concerned about the things of God. 
especially when we remain relatively trouble-free. Uh, and so when that happens, we're mostly committed to Christ and His Word. Things go awry. They don't go so smoothly. Uh, the burdens of just living from day to day kind of grow heavy. Uh, we tend to turn to our flesh to resolve them. Uh, self-help and self-help psychology. Maybe drugs. Maybe non-believers. We turn to diversions. Um, we may remain immature uh, because these things wear on us and we don't remain diligent as believers. So we don't want to be like the guy who has trouble in his marriage, but he wants to com- continue to play golf three times a week. Uh, you know, where he wants to remain irresponsible and unresponsive to his wife. That guy doesn't want to grow up. He doesn't want to live up to the commitments and the demands of marriage. So we look down on those kind of individuals. Uh, but then at the same time, we cut ourselves a lot of slack when we do the same thing with Christ. So it's important that we uh, have the right mindset, that we think the right way when we go through uh, times of, of stress and crushing defeat or tribulations. Again, the idea is that we approach life and we are thinking about it. Um, so verses 3 and 4 of Romans 5, he, he talks about that these tribulations are going to produce perseverance and perseverance is going to produce character. Uh, some translations Again, use the word perseverance, but they'll say it will produce proven character. Um, some will say that um, tribulations produces patience and then experience, or maybe steadfastness. And the King James will use the word approvedness, a word we don't we don't really use that word too much anymore. But the idea is is that it will produce endurance. That's what patience is. It's endurance. It's fortitude. It develops a maturity of character. Uh, which would be an approved faith, uh, a tried integrity. So an integrity that's been kind of put to the test and revealed that that integrity is intact. So the concept here is that the result of the trial is that we are approved, um, that we have a state of mind that has stood the test. Uh, a good way to understand patience uh, is there's the, the older word, long-suffering, you are suffering long. But it's more than just that. It's this. It's that our character as a Christian remains unchanged because of the circumstance or the stress. That's what that's what patience is. A man or a woman who has patience, that's, that's what they are. So the idea then is that uh, when we're under stress, we don't lose it. We don't become irritable with others. Um, we remain kind. We remain faithful to God, faithful to His Word. We remain loyal to friends. We remain obedient to the Word of God. Uh, so our character then doesn't change. So if we're growing as believers, that's what we should want in our life. Is And that's the kind of people we want to have around us. People who, when... When things get tough, they don't become different people. You know, they kind of step up to the plate uh, and they continue to produce. They're, they continually are there for us kind of a thing. So patient endurance then leads to a proof, I guess you could say it this way, that we really are truly Christian. That's the idea. To be biblical, uh, to have these characteristics means that, that I am truly living as a Christian. I'm claiming to be a Christian and I'm living as a Christian. That's that's a, a very important concept that people, I don't think, spend enough time thinking about. Uh, but for us as believers, we do want to be truly Christian in all that we do, and we want to be proven to be Christian in every aspect of our life. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So, Paul here says that it is yourself that you need to test. You need to put yourself, I guess, to to see the proof, to be proven. Um, what was going on here is there are individuals who were demanding that Paul kind of prove who he was. Um, as he was speaking for Christ, and he exhorts these believers to examine themselves rather than examining him. 
So the idea here is that we are to hold to our faith. Uh, we are to, to be living the life of faith. That's, that's, again, what it means to be a Christian. I'm living the life of faith. Uh, Paul doesn't use the word Christian, but the meaning is, again, that this tribulation, which produces perseverance, uh, which produces steadfastness or um, faithfulness, uh, the idea is that we are living as Christians should live, um, that I'm being true to what I say I believe. So if I'm going through a time of difficult, let's say that um, something happens that I disagree with. Uh, it could be a decision. It could be a decision within my family. It could be a decision at work. It could be a decision at church. But a decision is made that I disagree with. And let's just say, for the sake of the illustration, uh, that it doesn't matter what this decision is. So it's, it's not a matter of you being right and they're wrong or vice versa. It's just there's a clear difference of how each party views whatever the issue is. But you don't like the fact that that decision was made. Uh, maybe it, you're feeling pressure makes you angry. Well, we need to live as a Christian lives. I don't allow that to affect the way that I treat the ones I disagree with. I don't hold that against them. I don't view them as having flawed character because we disagree on whatever this issue may be. Like that happens a lot today uh, in the area of, of politics or maybe how we feel about certain politicians. People are writing other people off as a result of that. Christians don't do that. Um, I can disagree strongly with an individual. I can clearly think that they are wrong, even in every way. I may even have a hard time understanding how they are able to think in the way that they're thinking. But I don't suddenly start thinking that they're less of a Christian or that they are an evil person or treat them with disdain or disrespect because I don't like what they think or believe. And in our culture, many believe that that's a honest, right way to, to treat people we disagree with. But again, remember, we're, we're Christians. We should be able to put things in their proper perspective. So in the same way that, you know, I have, uh, you know, when it, for, for example, um, let's take something that's really um, unimportant and irrelevant. All right, so uh, I like professional football. My favorite team is the Chicago Bears. They stink, but that's my team. So I have, I have some friends who like the Dallas Cowboys. I have disdain for them. I like to see them lose. Uh, but I don't think any less of my friends who like the Dallas Cowboys. They don't think anything less of me because I like the Bears. We might even tease each other, make fun of each other. But at the end of the day, it's really of no consequence. Well, now I know politics may be a little more carry a little more weight than who your favorite football team is, or even if you like football, I would agree with that. However, as Christians, we know that the Word of God tells us that still when it comes to this world we live in, we're just passing through. It tells us not to become bogged down in the affairs of the world. So it doesn't mean that we don't take the affairs of the world seriously, or that we try to make, don't try to make a difference, because we do. But we don't let it bog us down. So I understand it with the proper perspective. And so if my friends and I disagree over political parties or political platforms or political solutions, uh, and even disagree strongly or even loudly, I don't disparage them because of that. Um, because we are brothers because of Christ. So this is really important that we grasp this because we sometimes lose sight of this as believers. So again, it's not just do I believe certain things, and that makes me a Christian, though that's important, but it's also how do I live? How do I react to life? How do I respond to people? So we have to ask ourselves a question, and this is what Paul asked them. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? That, that's what he wants them to think about. Christ himself lives in you. That, that means something. 
Of course, he says, unless you fail to meet the test, meaning that Christ is not in you, you're not a believer. So again, what Paul is doing here is we are faced with the reality of, of living, of living our life, how we live day to day, how we respond to difficulties of life. When the pressure is on, what do you do? Uh, do you go for a drink? Do you run away? Do you obey Christ? Not just in the area that is tested, do you continue to live as you should in every area, since every area is affected by the pressure that you feel? We know that if, if you're having pressure at home, that can affect your performance at work. It can affect your attitude at, at church. It can affect your ability to focus on all kinds of things. Um, if you're having financial pressure, we all know how that can really weigh on us heavy. You know, if you're worried about paying your mortgage or worried about buying groceries next month or whatever whatever the case may happen to be, uh, that can be a kind of a dominating issue, a dominating life issue. Uh, and so it's important that I react as a believer, which means that I don't just trust God for my finances, though I do. That also means that I continue to live for Him in every area of my life. I don't treat somebody poorly and say, well, you know... I, I've just really been worried a lot about my finances. Okay, that's just a wrong response. I, I that may that may be the pressure I'm feeling, and and that may be in a sense what has fed my being irritable with another person. But that doesn't excuse me to treat them poorly. I'm a Christian, so my faith in Christ and trusting Christ to meet my need will be displayed in how I handle this pressure. In, in the way that I treat other people in various situations. But you know, why is it that what I just said for so many people, Christians, doesn't bring in many real comfort and they don't think it's very helpful? I mean, it happens. Some are disappointed with what I've just said. They're like, well, where's the steps? I, I, you know, what are the four things that I need to implement to overcome. You know, what are the four things I have to do to be able to rejoice in trials and hardships? But Paul doesn't give any here. There are none. There's no steps in this. This is about who you are. The essence of who you are as a, as a human being, as a Christian. If you and I are who we are supposed to be, we don't need these steps. We don't, we don't need steps because... Uh, I'm able to deal with hardship because of the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ and because of his effect on me. Uh, now, we do see this in, in everyday interactions. Uh, I've used this kind of illustration a lot because we've seen this. We've seen how certain individuals can be dramatically changed in their approach to life because of a relationship with a new person. Um... It could be, whether it's a, a man or a woman, but let's just say that a friend that you know, let's say that he's kind of uh, high-strung. We would say that he's an individual who tends to easily worry about things. Um, he's constantly preoccupied with details of life. He's unable to relax, um, always trying to control every aspect of life. And let's say that... Uh, this individual is in their 20s, and let's say that they meet an individual, a woman, and let's say that uh, the relationship is going well. We would even say that they've fallen in love. And so because they love each other, they are spending more and more time together. Normally when that happens, you notice that that person becomes different. It's not just perhaps they're unable to go out to dinner with you anymore, that may be an indicator, but you're noticing that they are different. Perhaps he's more relaxed, less worried, uh, maybe a little more future-oriented in his thinking instead of trying to control only the here and now. So he doesn't become completely different, but he's deeply affected. Well, what's changed? Well, the only thing that's changed is his involvement with this other human being. So if our involvement in this relationship brings about that much change with, with just another person, we then should expect there to be that kind of thing as well in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the universe, who upholds all things by just the word of his power. 
the one who has forgiven me of my iniquity and taken away a heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh, I should become pretty different. And I should continue to become different. The same way that if this young man marries this woman, and let's say that they continue to grow closer together and their friendship grows deeper, and after being married for 10 years, they will be completely different people than they were when they were first dating. And completely different people uh, after 10 years of marriage than they were two years previous to ever meeting. It's not just that they've matured, though that's happened, but that even that maturing process has taken on a different flavor because of the presence of that person. And that's what we're talking about here. So the, the essence of who they are deep inside has become very different. They think differently, they react differently, they feel differently, they respond differently. All those things happen. So, Paul is saying here that this rejoicing that he's been talking about comes from knowing, comes from knowing God. That should be enough to satisfy us. Remember that as Americans, we're very, like, like anybody else, we're always influenced a great deal by our culture. So we are influenced by the American way of life. The American way of life is, is that my problems must be resolved or solved and resolved quickly. We all know or should know that there are situations, there are issues, there are problems that are not, first of all, easily resolved. And there are some things that, were, that are never going to be resolved. Christians in other countries where there's a great deal of persecution or at least suffering uh, because of being Christian understand this. And they are rejoicing and they're able to rejoice in the midst of their very difficult lives. American Christians, some anyway, have a very difficult time rejoicing in, in the midst of our problems or even because of our problems. We have a hard time with that because Christ isn't enough for us. It, for us, it's Christ in the American way. Resolve the problem. And I do think that there are times the Lord brings issues in our lives that aren't going to be resolved. At least they're not going to be resolved quickly. They're not going to be resolved in weeks or months or maybe even years. And he expects us to rejoice because of who we know. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. We need to be satisfied with that. So why are these things not good news to us? Well, I think a main reason is is because we've become content. We've we become satisfied with where we are. It's, it's almost as if, we don't really say this, but it's almost as if we've said, wow, Lord, I've changed so much. Thank you for changing me. But that's enough for now. I think I've changed enough. I, I like where I'm at. I'm very comfortable. I'm not really interested in changing really too much more, if, if at all. I like my life the way that it is. So if you could just kind of leave me alone. Um, well, you know, I, I really don't want any more trials or tribulations right now. You know, we want to dictate the terms of our life to God. Uh, and so we've become satisfied with where we are, content. Um, now, we wouldn't allow this from anybody else. I mean, imagine your, your children telling you that. You're, let's say that your 12-year-old says, Hey, Mom and Dad, you know, I know you've had a hard time raising me, and you've had to discipline me through the years. And, and uh, you know, now I'm 12 years old. I think i got a handle on life. So I, I really don't think I need your guidance anymore. I don't think I need your help. Um, I don't really need uh, any discipline from you. Um, I, I don't think I need to change anymore. I, I think I think I've got it now. Uh, we would think that's laughable. We, we we would look at our child, and even if they're a mature twelve-year-old, we would we would think how much further they've got to go because of what they got to face in life. They're not ready for that yet, and so we need to make sure we're not kind of carrying that same attitude with God. So. Sometimes what happens is, is you know, we've uh, uh, we kind of split our thinking up. You know, we we think about maturing spiritually, we think about maturing emotionally, and we we view those things as being kind of separate issues. They're not; they're very intimately tied together. Um, if you, as you mature in your understanding of the Word of God, you will automatically then mature in your thinking. You will mature emotionally. You will mature mentally. 
those things go hand in hand. If you, if as a believer, you're not growing in the Word, that will affect your maturing emotionally and, and intellectually. It, it'll slow it down. It may even handicap you. You may not be aware of it because sometimes what happens is, or maybe a lot of times, we, we look at where we are or how mature we are in comparison to other people. We look at it the way the world does. But we need to look at ourselves in the way that Christ looks at us. What is it that Christ wants us to become? What is the end product? Which is to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. So, uh, God does not want us to remain immature. And we should not want ourselves to remain immature. I want to tell you a story uh, about a young man. This is a, uh, it's a, it's a true story. It's from the uh, 70s. There's no one that anybody that I know knows. I don't even know the people involved. I, I learned this story from an individual who was teaching a class that I was taking on counseling. Uh, but he was, he was using it to illustrate a lot of points um, about our lives as Christians. So I'll just kind of, I'll give it to you. So there's a young man named Peter. Peter uh, is kind of being raised in a typical, what we would consider a typical Christian family. They go to church on Sundays. Um, they're, they're fairly faithful. Uh, the church is, uh, you know, it's a fairly active church. You know, they, they preach the gospel and, and uh, you know, they're trying to do the right things. They're concerned about missions and uh, making sure that people learn the Bible, that, that kind of thing. Peter is involved in the youth group. Uh, he's in high school, and he's he's really looking forward to graduating from high school and going to college. Uh, for him, college holds a lot of uh, excitement. Uh, he is looking forward to kind of being out on his own. He's looking forward to furthering his education to pursue things he wants to pursue. But he's also looking forward to college because he'll be away from home. He'll be away from his parents. Maybe. He won't be under their thumb so much. Not that he doesn't like his parents, and not that he thinks his parents are overly strict, but he wants he wants that freedom. Uh, he's not necessarily thinking, oh, there's all these bad things I want to do. I can't wait till I'm gone. I can do whatever I want. He's not thinking like that. He's actually not thinking in any specifics at all. But he is thinking in general. I want to be away from, away from my parents, away from the authority. I want to be my own person. So Peter graduates from high school. Um, he uh, he has an inconsistent prayer life, like a lot of Christians. Uh, his prayer life really, he's not really overly concerned with his growth as a Christian. He doesn't think about being a Christian. It's just, you know, he goes to church. So, yeah, he's a Christian. He believes in God. He believes in Christ. And he has a Bible, which he reads every now and then. Um, but that's just kind of what it, what it is for him. So the way the story goes is Peter goes to college. He goes to college and... Yeah, the freedom is great. I mean, he just he immediately senses a sense of freedom, um, and he has a little bit of trouble with that at times. Like some people, you know, he's there's no one to wake you up to make sure you get to class. Uh, so yeah, sometimes he's a little late for class. Sometimes he misses class. Uh, there's a lot of activities going on on the college campus, and so even though there's a greater workload than what he's used to compared to high school. Um, a lot of kids don't seem to be worried about the reading and the writing they have to do. And so he, you know, he gets caught up in, in procrastinating, you know, putting things off, going out with his friends, going to, you know, there's like a party every weekend. He's not necessarily doing anything wrong, but he's not necessarily doing anything right. Uh, but th things kind of get a, get away from him. You know, his whole schedule and he falls way behind in work and, uh, you know, as far as his classwork. And so what happens is, is he... Uh, realizes one day that he's in trouble. Final exams are coming up in a week or so. He's not ready. He's got papers he's got to write. Um, the, the due dates are coming quickly. and he's, he's got to put in long hours. He's unprepared in every way. Um, and, and so he's uh, just so concerned about it. So one of his friends says, you know, there's a, there's a guy I want you to meet. You know, he belongs to a, uh, his friend belongs to a fraternity. And so they, they meet and he kind of explains, his friend kind of explains to this new contact that, that, you know, Peter's going through this, he's worried about things. And so this guy says, man, you know, you need to join our fraternity. We've got all kinds of resources to help you, you know, deal with all of this. So Peter decides to join the fraternity. I'm not saying that joining a fraternity is bad or wrong. It's just what it is. 
So Peter joins, and so the guy talks about the fact that you know they kind of take care of their own. He says, look, he says, you're a first-year student. He says, most of these professors, they give the same test all the time. We got the answers. We can, I can sell you the answers. I can sell you the answers for cheap. He says, I know you probably have a couple papers due and, and you don't have time to do them. We, you can, there's, there's a few people here, that's what they do. You pay them and uh, they'll write the paper for you. But Peter, is, he's not too sure about all this. It's, you know, I mean, it feels like cheating, which, which it is. Uh, but but Peter, you know, he's not been he's not been reading reading the Bible. He's not been going to church since he's been to uh, this new school. He's not really praying. Uh, he's not seeking Christian counsel or advice. So he's he's going to do this. He's he's figured out a way to do this. He's he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna get through this semester and he's gonna change his life. So this is what he this is what he thinks. I know it's probably wrong to, to get the answers to the questions, but I'm going to do it just this once. I just got to get over this rough spot. Uh, I know that it's wrong to hire someone to write my papers, but if I just do it just one time, you know, now that I've got a, some, almost a semester of school under my belt, I, I know how to attack the next semester. And, and I'll, this won't happen to me again. I, I won't go to as many parties. I'll, I'll, you know, he makes all these promises to himself. And so that's the path he takes. Uh, he, he pays uh, for the answers to the exams and he hires some individuals to write some papers for him and uh, you know he, he he feels guilty he takes the exams he turns these papers in as if they are as if they are his own you know and uh, the, the week is over and uh, he's feeling he's feeling some guilt some very strong guilt so he, uh, he's feeling so so overwhelmed and almost panicky that he decides that uh, he needs to go talk to a, a Christian. So he figures he'll find some pastor at some church there in, in the town where the school is. So he, he gets out, you know, he back then, this is, this is the 70s, so there's no phone for him to get out. He gets out the yellow pages finds a church that actually kind of has a, a, a name that was similar to the church he went to. It's a Baptist church. So he, he, he go calls and makes a promise to see the pastor. And so he sits down and he talks to the pastor and, and uh, he kind of unloads. Tells the pastor what he's done and uh, you know, just the whole, the whole ball of wax, so to speak. And then uh, Peter says, man, I, I feel so much better. Because, you know, he's now that he's gotten all this off his chest, he, he does. He feels better emotionally. He feels better mentally because he's done this. But the pastor says, well, yeah, but he says, you've not, not solved the problem. You're still guilty of cheating. And what are you going to do if, if you get caught? Of course, Peter now starts to feel guilty again. And he's, he's like, well, I, I don't know what to do. And so the pastor says, look, Peter, he says, that's what you need to do. You need to uh, you need to call your parents. He says it's, it's better if you tell your parents now the situation, the predicament that you're in. Better for them to hear it from you than for them to get a call from the school. Peter knows that this advice is good advice. He doesn't like it. He says, well, okay, when I get back to the dorm, I'll, I'll call. Pastor says, hey, no need to wait. He grabs the phone on his desk and he puts it over there by... Peter says, you, you can call from here. He says, I'll, I'll leave my office and give you some privacy. Well, Peter's kind of on the spot now because the pastor has given him some good godly advice and he doesn't really want to take it, but he, he finally gives in. The pastor prays with him. He gives in and so he calls and talks to his, to his, his mom answers the phone and he kind of tells her his predicament. She tells him how unbelievably disappointed she is but she's so glad that he called that she still loves him and that uh, when he comes home for Christmas vacation she and his dad and he will they'll sit down and, and they'll talk about it and work it out so he does again he feels better psychologically thanks the pastor and the pastor says well he says Peter you're, you're not done yet Peter he says Peter you need, you need to go to the dean the dean of student affairs or an academic dean you, you need to tell him what you've done um he says, because if they find out, they're going to kick you out of school. It could be, be, be very embarrassing. He says, you need, you need to fess up, to do the right thing. 
so that you can start and, and do the correct thing and get on with your life. Well, you know, this is more than what Peter bargained for, and he knows what the guy is saying is right. Um, and this is a true story, by the way. So Peter Peter decides that, okay, he's, he's going to do what the pastor says. So uh, he goes back to the school, and, and he goes, he finds one of the deans, I don't know which one, but he finds one of the deans and uh, goes into his office and basically kind of tells him what happened. The dean is, is uh, very calm, but he's, he's vividly, uh, I mean, he's, he's clearly a little upset, but he's calm. And he says, well, he says, Peter, he says, I'm not sure what, what we're going to do with you. He says, I appreciate you being honest and telling me what you've done. Um, and he says, I have to meet with the faculty, meet with your teachers. And uh, so you come back and I think this was like a Friday. He says, you come back and you see me on uh, Tuesday and uh, we'll talk about, you know, what, what we need to, where we need to go from here. So, you know, Peter feels a little better. He gets to the weekend. He goes to see the dean on Tuesday. The dean says that, look, he says, uh, the teachers are all agreed that you have to be given a zero for all of your classes, but they've all agreed that because you fessed up, uh, we're not going to kick you out of the school. You'll be allowed to take all your classes again and start over. Peter's not real happy with that, but he's glad he's not being kicked out. And then the dean says this. He says, you know, Peter, he says, uh, all the teachers were surprised. Nobody knew that you cheated. Now, I'll be honest. When I, I told this story in the jail once when I was teaching a Bible study. And when I said or informed them that the dean said that none of the professors, none of the teachers knew that he had cheated, many of them went, oh, immediately. They just kind of, they couldn't help themselves. And we kind of laughed about it. And I said, I said you guys are, are uh, thinking, man, if he had just kept quiet, he would have gotten away with it. And that somehow is a good thing. But of course, they're missing the point. Peter's a believer. The, the, point, the goal is not to get away with this. It's to fix this, own up to it, and move forward, you know, to become a, a better person. Um, but anyway, so Peter's kind of stunned by that, but you know, he, he would have gotten away with it. Uh, so Peter goes home. Uh, he meets with his parents. And the way the story goes is Peter's life really is transformed. Uh, his walk with the Lord changes dramatically because he realizes how far away from the Lord he'd become. Uh, he ends up graduating from that school and becoming a successful businessman. And, and he points back to this time, to this event that took place um, in his life. Uh, that that this, this tribulation for him was caused by him, but nonetheless, it was a tribulation that God used in his life that in the end, the Lord was the one who helped him through all of this and transformed his life even more so as a result. So Peter then, the right approach was he, he was not satisfied with what he was. He did have to go through a very difficult growing experience, but it was what was best for him. I won't tell you the whole story, but there's a, a, a parallel story to this. There was an event that took place in a, in a college in Texas uh, several years later. Uh, where there was a, a man who um, was quite involved in the same kind of thing. He got through all of school uh, that way by paying for answers, paying for the people to write his papers, that kind of thing. He became, um, he, he graduated, even though he didn't do any of the work to graduate, uh, he became, a, a, I think, a, an investment um advisor, I guess, in Wall Street, made a lot of money, but ended up being caught, um, swindling a lot of people, and ended up in, in prison uh, as a result of all of his whole life just fell apart. And when you look at that man's life and Peter's life, if, if perhaps if he had been gone through that dilemma and gotten caught, or they had a conscience back when he was a freshman in college, maybe all of that would have been prevented. He may not have been as rich as he was for a little while, but he wouldn't be in prison where that man is now. So I tell you that story to tell you how quickly things conspire out of control. 
Now, what I mean by that is this. For Peter, in the very beginning of the story, it was not his intent to go to school and cheat. That never entered his mind. He never cheated before. He didn't He didn't think, oh, man, when I get to school, man, I'm going to party every weekend and, and I'll just figure it out. No, he didn't, no, that took place. His thinking was flawed because he wasn't really concerned about his walk with the Lord. He wasn't thinking about his life as a believer. He wasn't involved in spiritual disciplines as he should have been, prayer and the reading of the scripture and those things. Uh, he pretty much handled all of his problems in the flesh, <clears throat> not really seeking a Christian solution. And so the Lord allowed him to, to put himself in a situation to where he was really forced, because God is good, he was forced to, to deal with these things in this way. So the questions we have to ask ourselves would be this, <clears throat> and that is, when you're feeling the pressure of life, when you're feeling the pressure that comes from living, what do you do? How do you approach life? Do you think of how you can manipulate a situation, manipulate people at work, manipulate your boss? Do you think about how you can stretch the truth or kind of manipulate the truth to either make you look good or to get you out of something or to get you something, either at work or at home or wherever, or wherever it may happen to be? Uh, are you trying to make alliances with people solely because you're trying to use them as a way to advance yourself or your career or whatever it may happen to be? I mean, how do you handle life? Or, or do you ask yourself questions about being a Christian and how it is that God would have you handle a situation where, where, you, where you are going to be honest and forthcoming and those types of things? So do you seek the Lord do you pray? When we pray uh, in these situations, it's not just where we say, oh Lord, I'm asking you to, that, you know, sometimes we'll do this. We'll say, Lord, <clears throat> I'm going to do such and such. If you don't want me to do it, uh, shut the door. A lot of times in those situations, uh, we have no intention of, of, of uh, allowing God to shut a door. We're going to open it. If he does shut it, we've already made our minds up. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of putting God to the test. Instead of seeking the wisdom of God in the Word and obeying what it says, we're waiting for God to do something extraordinary. You know, God, tell me something. God, use a voice. You know, um, those types of things. We have to be careful that when we pray that we're not uh, seeking something outside of the Bible and trying to find a shortcut uh, to glean the wisdom of God or maybe to resolve a situation or an issue. Um... We need to make sure that we're not trying to make up for lost time. Uh, you know, we, we need to seek the wisdom of God. Sometimes we know the wisdom of God, but we think we still have a right to choose to do what we want to do. In other words, we may know the wisdom of God in a situation, and so we have the wisdom of God as option A. Then we have a combination of God's wisdom and my wisdom as option B. Then there's a solution I've thought of as option C, and then another solution I've thought of is option D. And we believe that as Christians, that these are all viable options, A, B, C, and D, and that I just need to pick the one that's best. That would be incorrect. I am a Christian. So D and C are eliminated. Now, B may be an option, combining my thoughts with God's solution, if I'm not compromising what God has said. But the idea is, is that we need to follow the wisdom that God has given to us. Now, it could be that you just resign yourself to the trouble and you just complain. You know, Peter could have done that. He could have just complained about the situation, maybe gone drinking with his friends, but done nothing. And maybe he, you know, as we know in the story, he wouldn't have gotten caught. Who knows what path that would have put him on. We need to make sure that we're not formulating our own plan without considering what God has said or God's word. So, so those are the things that we need to realize as believers. No matter how difficult life is, we, we need to do the right thing. And that can be incredibly hard. And so we need God's strength to do the right thing. Maybe even especially when we find ourselves in a stressful situation that we've caused for ourselves. We need to realize also that the trials that we go through sometimes give us assurance 
that we really do belong to Christ. I think sometimes God allows trials to come our way to show us how far we've come because we find ourselves resting easy in the Lord. Let me read to you verse 5. I want to focus on verse 5 for a moment of Romans 5. It says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the phrase there in that verse, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is not, as some have said, our love for God. It is His love for us. His love for us has been poured into our hearts. The, the wording there, poured out, means literally to, to la a lavish outpouring. It's, it's to the point of overflowing. So God's love flows out in abundance and we experience it in an abundant manner. So, so again, it's that sense where you, like, you, know, you have a cup and you're pouring water in the cup and it's just overflowing and everything is just flooded with it. That's the description of God pouring His love in us. So it's speaking of this inexhaustible abundance of this supply of God's love. Um, it is reminiscent when when uh, Israel was in the wilderness and God supplied water for them. You know, they when when God supplied water for them, they came out of the rock. It wasn't where. Everyone had to come and get their daily ration. There's no rationing of that. Come and get as much as you want. Get as much as you need. Because it's just overflowing. Numbers chapter 20 verse 11. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. And so that's just phrased where it wasn't where they were getting just enough water to get by. But it was just overwhelming. In fact, in Romans 5, when it talks about the pouring out of God's love, uh, the, the word that's used there in the Greek language is in the present, it's in the perfect tense, sorry. So it means that uh, this pouring out began at some point in the past, which would have been our conversion, and the effects of it, or the results of it, or the benefits of it continue. So God began to lavish his love on me, I guess it's, that's the idea, he, he's pouring his love into my heart at my conversion. And I'm still experiencing that at this moment in time. Uh, there's a set of books called Weast Word Studies. Uh, very good, uh, easy to read uh, um, set that helps you to understand more deeply certain books of the Bible. Uh, I think he's done Mark and First, um, Second Peter and James and Hebrews and Romans and some of those. As he talks about this pouring out in the perfect tense. And he says this, he says, God's love here has been poured out in our hearts and still floods them through the agency of the Holy Spirit who is given to us and makes us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. So the idea then is as you stay in the Word of God and as you fellowship with the Lord and as you fellowship with believers, we have this ongoing awareness that God has uh, lavished His love on us and it's refreshing to us emotionally and mentally. Um... It is something that affects my entire mental and moral activities. That's, that's, that's what he's trying to get at here. Um, when he talks about it being important in our heart, our heart, as it's used in the scripture, is, the, is both the seat of thought and feeling. So my thinking and my emotions are definitely affected then by the love of God. In the same way that we mentioned before about this young man being affected by this woman he's, that he, he loves, uh, that he uh, um, he's become a different person as a result. In a lot of modern cultures, the heart um, is thought of as just the seat of just emotions and just feelings. Uh, but for the ancient Hebrews and the Greeks, um, it was considered to be the center of knowledge and understanding and thinking and wisdom. Uh, and so it's important for us to understand that, that that's really what he's talking about. So when we say heart, we don't mean it in a way that uh, it's used in American movies or novels. Uh, but the, it affects who you are, the, the thought and your and the emotions of the individual. So Paul then is speaking of the very center of our being. So this idea then, this when we become justified, when we are saved by Jesus Christ, the essence of who you are as a person is absolutely transformed. 
and it's transformed because God saves us from our sin, forgives us, but then he also pours his perfect love into our hearts, his love for us, so that we are overwhelmingly aware and we have this overwhelming presence within us as individuals. doesn't always mean that you're feeling it, but we know it by faith. Okay? I know it to be true. So, this giving of the Spirit that he's talking about here, this is not referring to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost uh, in that sense, um, but it is the act of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. This is what the Holy Spirit does for every single believer, that when he takes up his permanent residency in the inner being of the believer, this is what God is doing for us. When he says that this was given to us, it means that um, what was given was based on the decision of the will of the giver. God decided to do this uh, on his own. It wasn't because he was responding to us, to some good that we did. Uh, John Calvin adds that this given means that this love was bestowed through the gratuitous goodness of God and not conferred for our merits. So my salvation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of God's love into my heart, was all done by the decision and the will of God because He's good and because He desired to do that for us, for our benefit. So it's really uh, amazing. Harry Ironside was an old preacher uh, in, I think, in Chicago um, uh, quite a while ago, and he says this. He says, This is the first mention of the Spirit's work in the believer. In Romans 1, we read of the Spirit of holiness in connection with Christ's work in resurrection. But we do not read of the Spirit's work in the believer until the soul enters into peace through the apprehension of the finished work of Christ. This is most important. I am not saved by what goes on within myself. I am saved by what the Lord Jesus did for me. But the Spirit seals me when I believe the gospel. And by His indwelling, the love of God is shed abroad within my heart. So when you reread verse 5, Again, now hope does not disappoint. Why does hope, this guarantee we have in Christ, why does it never disappoint me? It's because the love of God has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to me. So this hope, this confidence that we have, we will not, we will not be disappointed. We will not be ashamed in our living now. Uh, we will not be ashamed or disappointed in the midst of our afflictions or troubles. Why? Well, it's not because of something that we know or we deduce. It is not some conclusion we come to, nor is it because of something we believe. It's because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It does. This hope does not disappoint because something God the Holy Spirit is doing in me. So Paul is speaking of this direct and immediate assurance. Now this isn't revelation. He's not... You know, God isn't telling me something about the future or telling me about something that's going to happen tomorrow. But it is the direct work of the Spirit of God in my life, giving me this sense of assurance that I belong to God. Um, and so I, I, I believe this. I, I, I don't believe um, that... Well, I, I believe this is true because of what the, what the Word of God says and what the Holy Spirit has done for me. So here in our heart, at the very center of our being, God pours out abundantly His love for us. It is that love which overwhelms us. We experience the certainty of His love for us. We can even go so far to say that this is not something we take on faith, as it is something that God, the Holy Spirit, does to us. So it's really quite amazing uh, and isn't dependent upon you or me. We can just thank God for it and really relish the fact that, that God loves us. The same way if you have a, a wife or a husband that you know loves you desperately, we, we're just grateful. You know, we're not doing things to earn their love. We're just grateful that it's there uh, and it's life-changing. So we'll continue on. We'll pick up a little bit more of, of uh, kind of summarize what we've talked about today and then we'll move on in verse 6 and following of Romans 5 next week. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that you love us so much. We thank you, Lord, for this pouring of your love into our hearts and lives. We pray, Lord, that uh, you'll help us to be able to approach life the way that we ought to, that we'll be able to look at the tribulations, the stressful situations we find ourselves in, and that we'll think about it in a biblical way.
that we will recognize, Lord, that you are using these things to produce in us perseverance, that you are using these things to produce a steadfast character within us, uh, an integrity that is proven, uh, that, Father, that we may become what you would have us to become, that we would become more like Christ. And we thank you, Lord, again for this overwhelming love that you have for us, that you pour in our hearts by your Spirit that will never, ever disappoint us. Father, it's an amazing thing that you've done for us. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would emulate the greatness of your presence and the greatness of your gift you've given to us. So we do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.